Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone and welcome to the History of England. This is 264F, Rebel Queen 7, Yana non Regina. On one of the documents from the chaos of the 19th of July is a note in the margin of a document. It's written in the hand of William Cecil himself. It reads, Yana non Regina, Jane is no queen. As he stared out at the riot, fires, cheering and celebration on the streets of London, Jane's father Suffolk would have known that his daughter was finished as queen. All that remained was to know her fate and his own. Eventually, amongst all the euphoria and their hopes of survival, a group of councillors finally turned their thoughts to the Tower, though it was of Suffolk they thought rather than of Jane. Would Suffolk fight on for his daughter? That would be embarrassing and awkward and to be avoided. So, like the villagers seeking Vlad, the councillors gathered a crowd of about a thousand men apparently, told them to grasp their pitchforks, and in the evening air they proceeded to the tower, torches held high, no doubt. When they arrived, Suffolk gave orders for the councillors to be admitted to the tower, and finally they stood before Suffolk. They didn't mess about with any preliminary regrets or anything like that, it was straight down to business. As of this day, the 19th of July, Jane was no longer queen. Proclaimed publicly on the 10th, deposed publicly on the 9th, That's the life of Solomon Grundy, the nine days queen. As he turned to go back into the royal apartments, how Suffolk the father felt about the task ahead can only be imagined. Suffolk found Jane and Guildford at supper when he returned, surrounded by attendants as befits a queen and her consort. Jane herself would have been sitting on the royal chair which had caused her so much discomfort, the canopy of state over her head. As her father entered the room, everyone fell quiet. Suffolk walked over to his daughter. He could not think of what to say. Should he speak of his shame, or his regret, of his fear for her? What were the right words? In this task, as with so many others, Suffolk failed to find an answer. Instead, soundlessly, he reached up and ripped down the gold-silk canopy of state over Jane's chair. And only then did he find the words that This place did no longer belong to her, having to submit to fortune as changeable and envious of its own gifts. You must put off your royal robes and be content with a private life. Even when news is disastrous, there is a sense of relief at finally knowing the truth, isn't there? Sorry, bit of pop psychology there. But Jane had never been prepared 
asked or wished for the throne of England. Of everyone involved, she's the only one to have acted blamelessly and dutifully throughout. And even here, her father could not bear to tell her the whole truth, that the prospect of a private life was dim indeed. Maybe it was some sense of relief, though, that was reflected in Jane's reply to her father. I much more willingly put them off than put them on. Out of obedience to you and your mother, I have grievously sinned and offered violence to myself. Now I do willingly, and obeying the motions of my own soul, relinquish the crown, and endeavour to solve those faults committed by others, if, at least, so great faults can be solved, by a willing and ingenuous acknowledgement of them. It's classic Jane, really. There is acceptance, duty, self-deprecation. But there is also a hint of steel. She does not let her father and his accomplices wholly off the hook. Though, honestly, a bit of screaming, yelling and shin-kicking would have been entirely in order. Her next question would be the hardest of all. Jane asked her father, Can I go home now? She was 16, raised in an atmosphere of piety, learning and duty. Nine days was nowhere near long enough to complete her political education and the question is loaded with so much naivety that once more her father's courage failed. He could find no answer. He simply turned his back and left the room. At some point that evening, as Jane and Guildford watched the dancing fires from their windows and heard the cries of joy for their destruction, maybe they realised the possibility they might never leave the tower. In East Anglia, none of this was yet known, of course, despite the various sets of galloping hooves. On the 20th of July, as Paget and Arundel galloped towards Framlingham with desperate, bowel-loosening speed, Mary was reviewing the troops that Rochester and her household officers had managed to build for her. They had done a good job. She came out from the castle to the fields outside, riding a white horse, which, alarmed by the mass of men that greeted her, reared and kicked, and Mary was forced to dismount but she managed it all with grace and the majesty to which she had been trained for the last 37 years. As she reviewed her army, 10,000 strong with artillery and cavalry, one onlooker doubted whether they could have given greater adoration to God if he had come down from heaven. Back in the castle, Mary was told that Arundel and Paget were waiting for her, still soiled from their ride, quite possibly pushing at each other to look as though they'd got there first. Maybe a bit of pinching was going on under the robes. Who can tell? They brought with them a letter of such obsequiousness that I simply can't bear to read it because I can't afford the cleaning bills. The letter confirmed that Mary had been proclaimed Queen in London by the council and that, like the mountains, her enemies were laid low. What a gift that must have been. Mary would not have to fight. She was rebel queen no longer. Her first act was to order a crucifix raised in her chapel and a mass said in celebration. Now she could celebrate as she wished, and pretty soon everyone else could celebrate as she wished too. Paget and Arundel received their reward, they were allowed to kiss the royal hand and be received back into her royal grace. This was a good thing for them. It meant that their heads would remain in close proximity to their necks where they were comfortable. For Arundel, however, Mary had a further task. He was to go and arrest Northumberland and take the traitor to London and throw him into the tower with as contemptuous a snarl as you like and with added flounce. Meanwhile, Northumberland had spent the night of the 19th of July at Cambridge and spent the 20th gloomily watching his army melt away in front of his eyes. In the late afternoon of 20th, 
he was brought a copy of Mary's proclamation as Queen from London. Northumberland now accepted defeat, if he'd not done so in his heart already. He called his officers to him, told them to accept Mary, and added his self-justification pitch that everything he'd done had been at the behest of the council, and thus a delightful symmetry was established. Northumberland said he was just following orders, Gov, and the assembled council of 20-plus rich, powerful adult blokes said that nasty Northumberland had bullied them, the horrid man. As far as Northumberland's army was concerned, well, if you hadn't scarpered already, you certainly scarpered now. The sound of scampering scarperers rustled over the gentle Cambridge countryside like a million bunnies on a social. It was to be a day of deep joy for Northumberland, of course. Next arrived a stern letter from council telling him to submit and disband his army. What armies, said the Duke, examining his sleeves. Now it was official, Northumberland went down to the marketplace in Cambridge for one of the many moments of extraordinary drama in an extraordinarily dramatic story. Northumberland went with the men whose adherence to his adventure was total and unmoving. Edwin Sands, the Vice-Chancellor of the University, whose religion had tied him to Jane, and John Gates, whose loyalty to religion and to Northumberland kept him where he was. At his side also was his family, three sons, his brother Andrew Dudley and Henry Hastings, the Earl of Huntingdon and husband of Catherine Dudley, his daughter. It appears that blood is, after all, thicker than water. They announced the proclamation of Mary as Queen. Now, it was traditional at such an event to throw coins into the air, into the crowd, for celebration. Sands related how the Duke filled his hat with gold coins and how he threw them into the air in the marketplace in Cambridge and so laughed that the tears ran down his cheeks for grief. It had come to this. Forty-three years ago, Edmund Dudley had come to the end of a lifetime of loyal service to his increasingly paranoid and tyrannical master, Henry VII. Sitting imprisoned in the Tower, he had written of the tree of the Commonwealth, about how the country should be governed for the good of all, before being executed as a sacrificial offering to mark the start of the reign of a new young king, Henry VIII. And now, after a lifetime of devoted service, and of cautious and unending loyalty to his royal masters, and despite every effort to rehabilitate the Dudley name and avoid his father's fate, wipe out his father's fate, his son, John Dudley, had come to this, proclaiming the triumph of the rebel queen, who would without doubt have his head. No wonder the tears flowed from grief. It would be nice to think that he wept not just for himself and his own family, but also for Jane, and yet I have to doubt it and unlike his close companions, Dudley would not cover himself with glory over the remaining days of his life. That day, some of Mary's supporters tried to lynch Sands, but John Gates intervened, and he advised Sands to flee the city for his life, and Sands started out, but then he returned. When the bell rang to summon congregation, Sands attempted to preside as normal, but was stripped of his office by a furious congregation. When he was arrested that same night, Sands spoke with nothing but contempt for the people who arrested him, for whom Mary was, before a traitor, now a great friend. That same night of the 20th of July, Arundel arrived at the house of the Vice-Chancellor. He must have been knackered. Saving your life can be a tiring business. I wonder if there was any remorse, guilt or humility in Arundel as he arrested the Duke in person, the man to whom he'd pledged his blood. There's not much sign of it, it must be said. Northumberland 
threw himself to his knees in front of Arundel and pleaded that Arundel should be mercy to him for the love of God. And consider that I have done nothing but by the consent of you and all the whole council. My lord, I am sent hither by the Queen's Majesty, and in her name I do arrest you. And I obey it, my lord, and I beseech you, my lord of Arundel, use mercy towards me, knowing the case as it is. My lord, you should have sought for mercy sooner. Pretty uncompromising on Arundel's part, it seems to me. Mary was in no hurry to get to London, which shows some presence of mind, I think. The grounds outside her house at Framlingham were worn into little paths, beaten down by the guilty come to beg for her pardon and grace, the grass growing thickly, watered by their tears. The paths back were worn by the stream of prisoners being taken to the tower. All around the kingdom, Mary was proclaimed as queen, which took a while, it must be said, but now there was only one story. There was no rebel queen. On the 24th of July, Mary finally left Framlingham for London. Once more, she took her time. No need to hurry. Along her route, the stream of apologetic nobility and gentry came to beg for forgiveness and for life. And by and large, Mary gave it. Though, by and large, forgiveness came at a price. Lord Clinton, for example, the Stanley of the Nine Days Queen, had jumped ship to Mary before Arundel and Paget arrived, and Mary had graciously allowed him to kiss her hand. Phew! he thought. That was close. Which was less his thought when the bill arrived. One grace for the use of £7,000. A massive price that would leave his family in debt for years. Northumberland arrived in London rather more quickly. The news travelled ahead of him as he came. Here he came, the most hated man in England. The news spread, rippling in front of him like a sound wave or like a virus. It must have been some mercy for him that he was alone with his sons around him and John Gates as he entered London on the 25th of July, because he was hit by a wall of noise and hatred. One can hardly convey the size of the crowds which filled the streets to see the prisoners, so enormous that they could scarcely ride through it. Such extraordinary times. Shiver and Renard were ecstatic, almost unbelieving. Until the very last moment, they considered Mary doomed. The French ambassador was equally incredulous. Say what? Qui arrive à ce place? Sacred blue! I have witnessed the most sudden change believable in men, and I believe God alone has worked it. As Northumberland's party pushed their way to the tower, the crowd, in their fury, threw rocks and stones. Some waved handkerchiefs at Northumberland, dipped in Somerset's blood, one of the reasons for their hatred. Death to the traitors! Long live the Queen! came the cry. And then, out of the crowd, rushed a figure, a man whose ears had been crudely cut off at the root from his head. It was Gilbert Potter. Brandishing a sword and the scarred sides of his head, he yelled, Behold the free tongue of an honest citizen, as you have disfigured the head of an innocent man by the mutilation of his ears, so you be dragged to the punishment due to treason and parricide, according to your deserts. Ha, parricide, eh? In the background, there were a few dissenting voices, not yet swept away by the euphoria. Going so far as to say, 
that men should see the Antichrist come to life and popery in the land. Despite the fury of the crowd and the tears of his son Henry at his side, Northumberland kept a calm countenance all the way to the tower. There he was greeted by the new warden, John Gage, and the men were taken to their prisons to wait to learn their fate. As they went, they would have been watched by a small, pale 16-year-old girl from her new lodging in the tower complex near Tower Green, no longer in the glory of the royal apartments, but comfortable nonetheless. After her father had torn down the canopy, Jane had retired to a private apartment with her mother and her ladies and the Duchess of Northumberland. But even this mild form of comfort couldn't last long. Suffolk told Jane's ladies they should leave to save themselves from further wrath. The Duchess must leave to do what she could to save her family, and even Jane's mother must leave. It must have broken Frances's heart to leave her daughter, but she was the only hope of her family now. She was the one with a relationship with Mary. On her prayers and her pleadings, all their futures rested. What's a bit harder to understand is what happened next. Suffolk took himself to Tower Hill. There he proclaimed his loyalty to the new Queen Mary and accepted Jane was no longer Queen. That's understandable. You would have to do that. But then he left the Tower. How could he do that, ladies and gentlemen? I can't see it would make his situation any better. His life was in the hands of his wife's persuasiveness. And so, how could he leave his daughter alone in the tower? Talk me through that. The royal apartments were now a ghost town, through which Jane and Guildford walked, while wary and, you'd hope, sympathetic servants watched. Eventually, Mary's guards arrived to take them away, and they were separated. Guildford to the cold stone walls of the Beecham Tower, already carved with the names of previous inmates, which you can see today, I'm told. Jane was taken to Tower Green to the house of the jailer Nathaniel Partridge to live under his care. From there, she'd have seen the stream of lords being taken to their prisons to await their fate. On the 25th of July, she'd have seen the arrival of Northumberland and the Dudley boys and seen the father separated at last from his children. Jane now sat down to write, to write for her life and for her conscience while she waited for the judgment of the victor, Mary Tudor. It would not be until the 3rd of August, 1553, that she would have heard London erupt with joy and hope as the new Queen rode through the streets. Jane waited alone with her jailer to see what her fate would be.